The Slate Culture Gap Fest is brought to you by the new podcast, Dog Smarts. Each episode features leading researchers and academics that tackle questions of language, memory, intelligence, and even love as they pertain to our dogs. Subscribe to Dog Smarts on iTunes now. And by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code CULTURE. And by Open Account, a podcast that gets personal about making, losing, and living with money. Created by Umqua Bank and hosted by Sujin Pak, download and subscribe to Open Account wherever you get your podcasts. The following podcast contains explicit language. Julia Turner, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Lonely Cilantro Edition. It's Wednesday, June 8th, 2016, and on today's program, we're going to talk about Lady Dynamite, the new Netflix series from Maria Banford, and then Paul Simon's new album, Stranger to Stranger, and what to make of that singer-songwriter's long and occasionally bedeviling career. And finally, Pop Star, the new parody film from the fellows from Lonely Island, including Andy Samberg. Joining me today is da da da, and can we get some fanfare, some trumpets? Back from Bookly. Hooray! <laughs> Huzzah! Hello! Hooray! I'm only saddened, Stephen, that your injury kept me from... We were all three going to be in a room together. We were going to have a I know. group hug and a maypole dance and all kinds of things. <laughs> I know. Well, we'll get to my injury in a second. But, Dana, all I can say is if you've come back from book leave with a book, I am never speaking to you <laughs> again. Completed manuscript, right, Dana? She's got this stack here on the table. It's like about a foot and a half high. Yeah, I just carry it around with me just because. <laughs> no, I would say, Steve, that I'm now at the point that you were at for the previous eight years we were recording the podcast, which is like, don't ask me about the book. The book's fine. <laughs> All right. Dana. No, it was great, but I missed y'all. Dana's back. Hooray. And Steve, sadly, is not hosting today and not in studio, although he is with us for most of our segments because Steve, um, I believe Steve was injured in the NBA finals in some way? Steve, explain <laughs> what happened. I mean, uh, what can I say? I busted out of my breakaway sweats. I was ready to go in with the you know Warriors B team. And uh, no, I was, I was playing a pickup basketball game in Sonoma County against a uh, old friend of mine from high school and a 14-year-old boy. And at the end of 90 minutes, my friend had a torn meniscus and I had a um, torn calf muscle, <laughs> possibly an Achilles tear. <laughs> but the boy had only grown stronger. <laughs> he he walked off with a huge smile on his face. He, he, he was these were two feathers in his cap. Is that a thing that but, happens? You like see you watch like an inspiring basketball game, and then you want to play basketball. It reminds me of like me and my sister when I was little, like coming home from the ballet and like you know pretending to be on point around the living room. Is that what you were like, Steve? I'm embarrassed to say that's absolutely how it works. And apparently this is going to follow me to the grave. Though, I mean, um, it may not be anytime soon that I get on a basketball court. I'm, I'm, I'm wounded, man. You should have seen me in the San Francisco airport last night. I Ugh. was actually on one of those beeping carts. Oh, poor Steve. I'm sorry about your, your torn calf. Thank you. 
All right. Well, we will soldier on this week. Before we commence, I should also mention a bit of business. On Slot Plus today, we're going to be joined by outgoing, wonderful outgoing Culture Fest intern Lindsay Albrecht, uh, who will tell us what she's headed off to do. And she will also tell the story of how the Slate Culture Gab Fest is responsible for her marriage. So stay tuned for that. If you are not yes, yet a member, I'm taking full credit, Lindsay. She's laughing in the studio. If you're not yet a member, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. And tickets are now on sale for our live show in the Berkshires at the Mount. We are going to be partying at Edith Wharton's house. Some wag on Twitter said we will have to make everyone laugh and then it can be a house of mirth. <laughs> anyway, sign up for tickets at slate.com slash live. It's Thursday, August 4th in the Berkshires. It will be fun. It is an incredibly beautiful place to visit. I am so honored and excited that we're going to do a show there. We will have to come up with topics worthy of the lady. Oh, and one final bit of business before we start, just a reminder to listeners that it is time once again for our annual Summer Strut playlist, which means we are accepting submissions on the Facebook page for songs that are struttable. These can be old, new, uh, we'll do a fun segment in a few weeks once we've had a chance to listen to all of your suggestions. We're also accepting suggestions on Twitter. Tweet at our Twitter account, at Slate Cult Fest, uh, and use the hashtag Summer Strut if you've got room. If the title's not too long, that'll help us collect and collate them. All right, let's commence. We are joined first by Willa Paskin, Slate's TV critic, to talk about Lady Dynamite. Hi, Willa. Hi, Julia. Thank you for coming on. Of course. We are going to start with our discussion of Lady Dynamite, the new Netflix series from the comedian Maria Bamford. She created it along with Mitch Hurwitz, famously of Arrested Development, and Pam Brady, who was some kind of producer on South Park. We've all dabbled in the show in classic Netflix fashion. It all appeared instantly, but I only made my way through three or four episodes of it. Willa, you reviewed it for Slate. Tell us what you think about the show and what's most interesting about it to you. What's most interesting about Lady Dynamite to me is basically that it is not like other shows on television, um, which even though there's this huge volume of TV, it seems it has made it harder and harder to make things that are unlike other things. Um, and so it's basically a sort of semi-autobiographical comedy as shows created by stand-up comedians tend to be. And it's in conversation with that idea about a person much like Maria Bamford, who um, is bipolar and so has had a sort of very serious mental health episode that took her away from Hollywood and sent her home to Duluth, where she was sort of dealing with her depression for many years and has returned to L.A. to sort of restart her career. And it just jumps around in time through the past when the character in the show was having like a very successful career doing um, advertisements for a chain store, which in real life Maria Bamford was doing for Target, and, and the sort of time in Duluth when she's depressed and at home and sort of piecing her life back together, and then in the present in L.A. when she's trying to start working again. But the thing that's interesting about it, and I didn't actually know until I just watched more than the first four episodes this morning on this occasion, is it's actually kind of a dating show. I thought it was like a satirical Hollywood show and also a semi-autobiographical comedian show. But the thing that emerges over time that is the plot of every almost every episode is her dating, which was like a – it's pretty funny. I actually also, when I watched it this morning – and last night again, I laughed at it so much more than I laughed at the first three. Sometimes you need a show to like make itself known to you before you can find it funny. I, I had a similar response to the first three episodes, which is like Maria Bamford is very smart and I admire her and this is distinctive and I don't care to watch any more of it. <laughs> like, and, and I'm impressed by what she's pulling off and I'm impressed by the tonal shifts. And yet this is not how I care to spend my free time. But it's true that familiarity can sort of breed comfort and interest. And I wonder if I'll circle back around to it. Steve, what did you make of the show? Uh, I agree with Willa that it's in some respects completely atypical. It has this totally genuine 
bipolar jaggedness to it. She feels mentally ill, I think is the way to put it in a way. I mean, she doesn't try to soften, sweeten, or turn into vacuous homily her own her own issues with being bipolar. On the other hand, I felt, and maybe this mitigates as the show goes on into further episodes, but it seemed to me um, generically like a lot of other things on television, you know, this, the stand-up comedian using their life as raw material for a half-hour sitcom. That's not a new format, so much so that the f- show makes fun of itself for doing it. Will, are you starting to weary a little bit of this mode? Because I found that even breaking the fourth wall, even ironizing about its own ironies, uh, bursting, you know, busting narrative conventions, all of that, the show definitely does. It still felt in that way oddly typical. Well, I am wearing of that particular um, format of which there are now a lot of shows on TV. I mean, Seinfeld and Louis are kind of like two of the progenitors, but there's, you know, there's Marin. Andrew Dice Clay has a show called Dice that just came out that's like this. I mean, there's hundreds, I mean, not hundreds, but dozens of shows that are um, in this mode and they're not all good. Although I think that this idea that um, the sort of self-reflective comedian who reveals their flaws behind their persona is associated with goodness. Like we have a lot of things on TV that that seem like prestige and so people do them because they are prestigious. And I think that this sort of quote unquote thoughtful stand-up guy or woman doing a version of their life is associated with prestige, whether or not it's good or funny. It's sort of the comedy version of of the the, the fancy period drama yes. or the antihero exactly. drama. Totally. 100%. Like, I mean, Flaked is, I mean, this is touches on all these comedies that aren't funny. It's like very similar. Flaked is that way. In depressing, that, thinky, com- <laughs> quote unquote comedies right, which from people we at. know to be funny, right. but I, that make you uncomfortable. So I actually did find Lady Dynamite to be distinct from those in a number of ways, although it is using those tropes and, and in conversation with them, and as you said, redresses them directly in the first episode in these scenes where Maria Bamford has this kind of fourth wall breaking conversation with Patton Oswalt about whether or not she's actually going to do stand up in the show and how she d- shouldn't do all these things that they've done on all these other, sh- other shows before. Would you want to come to a, a comedy show? They're so wonderful. Uh, well, I, 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 uh, I, oh God, Maria, I'm sorry. You, come here. You're going to put stand up in your show? Yeah. I mean, is that bad? It's, yeah, it's bad. It is bad. It's been done so many times before. You know, you got Louis, Seinfeld, Chappelle, Amy Schumer, my two pilots. No, they didn't go. I'm so sorry. We haven't officially met. Uh, Are you the comedy police? I'm a friend giving friendly advice. Well, you're also an actor, so just say your lines, monkey. You have to remember in that scene that um, Pat Oswalt is wearing a police officer's outfit when she asks him if he's the comedy police. The show doesn't, I think it goes out of its way to avoid tropes like doing stand-up in the show. She never does that. The, the climax of the pilot is actually Patton Oswalt doing weird, bad stand-up instead of her. And then it ends up exploring all of this stuff that's actually interesting and unique and weird about Maria Bamford's own comedy, which is basically her mental health and how sort of strange she is in ways that I found unique because I think she's just sort of such a unique personality. And it didn't – for the one of, it was one of the few shows where just like the premise – that it's a com- a comedian sort of riffing on their own life didn't bother me because I felt like they were really pushing it to strange and bizarre places. Dana, what did you make of the show? 
I really enjoyed it. Um, I I really identified with the Maria Bamford character, who's just this kind of such a fragile, neurotic, crazy, and yet weirdly horny, filthy-mouthed, compulsively honest. She's just a great mixture of qualities, which is made into a joke in the show, that she has this sort of manic-depressive side or this very introverted side. But there's a great, great conceit in episode four where she pretends to be an extrovert and takes on a completely different voice of like Diana, the tennis player. Like Catherine Hepburn. And basically picks up a guy, gets a guy liking her just because she can shift into this people-pleasing other kind of voice. So I I love that the way that her character plays with sort of femininity and what's expected of, you know, a a female performer. And in that way, even though this is not a show about performance or a fourth wall breaking Hollywood comedy, the show that this most reminds me of is Enlightened, the old Laura Dern, sadly canceled HBO show about essentially a kind of mentally ill woman trying to to function in society. And actually, the mental illness thread is another thread in modern television that makes the show seem less distinctive, even though it's completely Maria Bamford and idiosyncratic in the way it executes that theme. But between the late departed Enlightened and then Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, another Netflix show, we have a suite of shows that are specifically about the mental health issues of female protagonists. And I think because we know so much about Maria Bamford's own life and that this is something she's actually dealing with personally as opposed to something that's been adopted as a plot engine, there's an authenticity to the way that she's encountering it and sort of an instability that feels a little like volatile and not comforting on your Netflix screen. Like it's not like, oh, I'm going to settle in for a procedural and have all of my have, have all of my like buttons pushed in the order I'd like them to be pushed. You're setting down for a night that's raw. And I think, you know, I'm a big admirer. I mean, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and Kimmy Schmidt are actually two shows that I've watched the entire current seasons of that I'm caught up on, which is like a very small list of shows at this point in my life. But their encounters with mental health even as Kimmy Schmidt explored it much more seriously, like what post-traumatic stress means and what it feels like. And, and you know, she gets a therapist in the second season of the show. It's dealt with very straight in, a, in kind of a narrative, a comforting narrative tone of like, you have problems. You must reckon with them. You must face the fact that you have them. You should probably have some conversations with a therapist. Then perhaps you'll have a breakthrough. Then life might feel different. Closure. Yay, progress, closure. Like they have these very, for all that they're like about these unstable dames who sing and dance and, and you know, walk like pixie elves through gentrifying New York. They're really, really conservative in their structure. They believe like closure is real. I think also one of the things structurally is that those shows are not Crazy Ex-Girlfriend quite so much, but Kimmy Schmidt is uh, really an ensemble. So like Kimmy recedes for the first half of the season. And then when she comes to the fore and we're dealing with her mental health problems, it is in the structure of like her improving. And Lady Dynamite is really focused on Maria Bamford almost exclusively and her kind of as she, you know, bounces between different things and you're not insulated from her. And also the show doesn't always kind of tell you what to make of her battiness and, and like her good qualities, but the way that they, you know, like she has these two friends that are kind of nightmare friends. She's constantly being taken advantage of by one of them who's her assistant. And at no point, and like the fact that she's so nice to them is like a nice thing about her, even though she's constantly like being taken advantage of by sort of everyone in the show. You're just never she's you're just always in this middle ground with her, I think, where the show doesn't like give you a hand on how to feel. Well, I would say in relation to her, well, a great example of that is where she's having lunch with her agent. And for some reason, they both turn into sheep. And they're <laughs> yeah, no, actual... just, just she does. Just, and just I, she does. And I think it was like a personification of like her 
of like her sheepishness, like her, you know, but no one even noticed. Right. But. Her kind of inner powerlessness <laughs> yeah. or her she kind of just lamb bleat, bleating in herself. But, yeah. but I love the unexplained nature of the shot of a sheep suddenly sitting yeah. at a cafe table. So I, I, I agree with all this. There's something very raw and unsettling about the show. And that's that's its stance towards the viewer. Right. Exactly right, Julia. Like you're not allowed. You watch Catastrophe and Catastrophic Things happen but you also feel somehow settled in and comforted by the general experience of watching it and this show conscientiously deprives you of that feeling and I think that that's admirable but did anyone else also feel at moments that it's about Maria Bamford's struggle with bipolarity but it's also in it possibly inadvertently about the commanding American psychosis vis-a-vis show business, that, that the defining American mental illness is our inability to escape Hollywood, either in, in real life or imaginatively. And the need to be, her need to be in that town and around that town and within the instrumental machinations of people who do not care about her as a human being at all struck me as either consciously or unconsciously revealing. I'm yeah, I don't think it was inadvertent at all, actually. I think that's yeah. one of the subjects of the show, but I think it's a little bit more complicated, only insofar as she is surrounded at home also by awful people. Okay, I mean, her parents are not awful people, but she has this best friend who's just as awful as everybody else. And, you know, there's this scene where she's at work in an office. The chronology is, like, a little bit off because she's back home in Duluth, but it's, it seems like it's after sort of the crux of her breakdown, and she's sort of working there and and she becomes there's like a, a comedian in the office like a funny guy like the fun the office funny man and she basically gets into sort of a competitive thing with him where she wants to also make everyone laugh but her humor is completely lost on her office because it's so weird and strange and bizarre and they think she's a total weirdo and they just want to laugh at these like you know jokes that are very like Steve Carell's character in the office and I thought that in that moment it was a little bit like it was a compliment to Hollywood, which is like for all of the things that are terrible about show business, at least there people have taste in comedy. And like if you're a total weirdo <laughs> who has a very specific sense of humor, like that's where you have to go to find people who get what you're doing. You're not going to get it living your life in Minnesota. I feel the need to say, too, because we're talking about this as the Maria Bamford show, which it sort of is. She's certainly on screen every second, and it's her strange, spiky personality that captures the viewer's attention. But the supporting cast is uniformly great. I mean, the writing is not even always uniformly great. I think every one of these episodes, which are about 35 minutes, could lose about 10 (laughs) minutes. But Fred Melamed, who plays her manager, is fantastic. I mean, he's always funny. Ever since I saw him in A Serious Man, I cannot look at Fred Melamed without (laughs) dissolving in tears of laughter. But he's really great as this extremely incompetent uh, but very loyal in his way, manager. And uh, and Mary Kay Place of The Big Chill plays her, her nurturing but meddlesome mother in a really wonderful small role as well. Yeah, and the, the performances by her bad hanger-on friends are great. Anna Gasteyer plays this agent who's kind of swooping in on Fred Malamud's territory with, like, crazy frenetic brio. Also, if you stick with it, you wouldn't know this, but Jenny Slate shows up. Dean Kane shows up in an extended cameo. I mean, there's a lot of funny people. Well, and Brandon Routh, Superman himself, has yeah. a very bad date with her. Yeah. Wait, sorry. Dean Kane and Brandon Routh both show up? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So the whole thing is just like a way from Rio Bamford to meet various incarnations of Superman. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> she probably has a thing. <laughs> All right. I hope, I hope that pays yeah. off somewhere down the line. Let's go around. Steve, would you commend this show to our listeners? Yes, I would. Um, but I wouldn't be shocked if they 
it has to rub you the right way because if it doesn't, it's going to rub you really, really the wrong, wrong way. Willa. Yeah. I actually, when I watched it again, so I had watched the first four and I'd taken a long break. I laughed at it so much more this time, like this morning when I was watching some new ones that I agree with Steve. If you don't like it, you're not going to like it. But if you sort of are into it, maybe like sit with it and see. Dana? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's a, it's completely Maria Bamford based. My my answer, it's like cilantro. Like if she re, if you find her grating, <laughs> and you know you find this kind of format too repetitive, then turn it off immediately. But if like me, you sort of feel like, wow, what's going to unfold next from this strange cabinet of curiosities that is Maria Bamford's brain? Yeah, I'm going to keep watching. I think I've shamed myself into watching because I've realized that I've spent so much time in the like pat digital company <laughs> of crazy women whose craziness is easily contained in an episodic structure of a sitcom arc. So now that I realize how moronic and lame that is, I think I have to watch the rest of the show. Watch Maria Bamford. It's good for you. <sighs> like cilantro. So many nutrients. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Willa, for coming on. Thank you. All right. Now we will interrupt this podcast for a word from our first sponsor, Dana, who is our sponsor today. Yes, I'm very excited to welcome this new sponsor because they seem fun. This week's Culture Gap Fest is brought to you by Purina and the podcast Dog Smarts. So if you've been looking for a podcast to listen to about your dog's inner psychology, do they understand what you're saying? Do they really sense your emotions the moment you walk in the door the way they seem to? What does your dog need and what do you need from it? If you've asked yourself these questions, you need to tune into the podcast Dog Smarts. It's hosted by leading author and professor of cognitive neuroscience at Duke University, Dr. Brian Hare. And each episode brings together the brightest researchers and academics to discuss what's really going on in your dog's brain. You know, when we first got a dog, I actually bought a bunch of books on dogs, dog psychology and training and things like that. This, this kind of stuff is really fascinating. Oh, my God. I'm so impressed. I didn't even read those books for my children. <laughs> I have them. They're on my shelf. How toddlers thrive. I'll never know. (laughs) (laughs) But see, they made it through somehow. I don't know. So if you want to investigate this podcast, which is something I actually plan to do, it sounds fascinating, you can download and subscribe to Dog Smarts on iTunes today. All right. Well, we're joined for our next topic by Slate Music critic Carl Wilson. Hello, Carl. Hi. We're going to discuss Paul Simon's new album, Stranger to Stranger, and the terrific piece that Carl wrote about it for Slate called, and this may tip his hand a bit, The Worst Great Songwriter. Carl, tell us a little bit about what you thought of Simon's new album, Stranger to Stranger, and uh, why that ended up being the headline for your piece. Well, to me, this album really typifies a kind of struggle I've had with Paul Simon's music all my life, I feel like. It's musically and sonically, particularly the kind of arrangement of sounds and the rhythms and everything involved of all show off this sort of incredible craftsmanship that he brings to songwriting. But there's moments of glibness and moments of sort of gestures that really fall flat and things that ultimately I would call kind of gauche <laughs> throughout the album that I think typify problems that Simon's always had and, and that have come and gone in his music. And I'm a big fan in a lot of ways. I really, there's a lot of Paul Simon music I love, but I've always also felt kind of put off and at moments kind of repulsed by his music. And, I've, and I really wanted to write about that and figure out what the dynamics involved in that are. Well, let's, um, I think there's a lot of, of ways in there, but I would suggest that we start with two clips from the new album which, to my mind, typify the highs and lows of Simon as a lyricist, although you, others may disagree about what they typify. But let's start with the opening lines from the album on its first song, Werewolf. Werewolf. <laughs> 
Milwaukee man led a fairly decent life, made a fairly decent living, had a fairly decent wife. She killed him, a sushi knife. Now they're shopping for a fairly decent afterlife. So we'll we'll get into a close reading of that text in a moment. But in my view, you can't argue with the specificity of that pause uh, before he says sushi knife, which is like just a funny little vocalization that really makes that couplet memorable and lacerating. And then let's move on to the second song, which is called Wristband, which tells the heartbreaking story of Paul Simon being shut out from one of his own concerts because he didn't have the proper wristband and what that taught him about um, suffering worldwide acceptance and exclusion in our society. I stepped outside the backstage door to breathe some nicotine and maybe check my mailbox See if I can read the screen Then I heard a click The stage door lock I knew just what that meant I'm gonna have to walk around the block If I wanna get in a wristband, my man You got to have a wristband If you don't have a wristband, my man You don't get through the door Oh, poor Paul Simon <laughs> He's living that scene from Birdman, although presumably with clothes on. <laughs> um, how did this album crystallize for you some of what you found gauche and some of the things that you found appealing in uh, Simon as a lyricist? Well, yeah, both of those tracks kind of do that for me. I mean, I, I agree that The Werewolf is the better of the two of them. Um, but even with The Werewolf, you know, it's, it sort of starts off with this Milwaukee man bit, and then this kind of the repeated thing, which is both appealing and also still kind of, 50s arch cosmopolitan poetry, you know, the fairly decent living and the ending up with the fairly decent afterlife. And in The Werewolf, just as in the wristband, you know, he's trying to sort of talk about broader societal things. You might even say he's sort of talking about 1% and wealth inequality. But in both of them, there's this sense that Paul Simon has no idea where he stands to any reasonably wide awake listener in that system. And he's in, in the werewolf, he's kind of condescending and arch and judgmental ultimately about it. And in wristband, he kind of tries to stand with the masses who then rise up because they lack the social equivalent of a wristband <laughs> for. And the, the bouncers of society are keeping them outside of the stadium of well-being. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and in that case, like the gaucheness really comes across there because actually, for a moment, like when he switches into that into that bigger metaphor, for a moment, I feel stirred, and then I remember what the song I've just been listening to is, and and I know that he means it to come off with some irony, but there's there's a lack of self awareness that I think it's interesting because for such a self conscious an introspective songwriter in a lot of ways. There's kind of a larger self-awareness that he always seems to lack of who Paul Simon is and why these metaphors are the ones that he's using. And, you know, to a listener, none of that is opaque. It's, you know, it's Paul Simon, you know, you're the richest, most famous man. And he doesn't understand his position of complicity or the dynamics of him inside that. It always feels like he's a little blinded to, to all of that. And the little comes at it in a kind of naive way that seems 
unacceptable at this at this point of his sophistication and maturation. Right, especially after the response from Graceland and Rhythm of the Saints and those both great albums, but albums in which he was accused of appropriating other cultures' music and not giving enough recognition or credit on the album sometime. I mean, coming from that background, you would think that the lyrics to a song like Wristband would be a little more self-aware than they are. I mean, Wristband strikes me as unusual, and I, I'm curious for your guys' help in, in thinking through his back catalog, but a part of Simon's appeal for me, and I should confess here that I'm just basically a huge fan of Paul Simon's, is that most of his songs, I think, have a really specific lyrical appeal. And I would liken him to a short story writer, which is a little strange for me to say because I basically don't like short stories. I find that they don't have quite enough like narrative depth to hook me. And they often have these like kind of pat, smug little conclusions, like a give me a novel or poetry and I'll throw the, po- the short stories out the window generally is my, you know, if I had to throw one genre out, which is an absurd exercise. But there's something about Paul Simon's songs that feel that way. They feel sketched, but precise. It's pretty clear in most of his songs that the protagonist is not himself. It feels that he's writing about social types that he's sort of part of and sort of not. And there is a bit of smugness and disdain. And there is a, you know, I think if you look at the history of who bought Graceland and what kind of album was, it was an album like for yuppies who didn't identify as yuppies, right? It was like, well, I'm not the guy in the chair with my hair blowing back. I'm not that kind of 80s asshole. I'm like a culturally sensitive 80s person who can appreciate the sounds of Africa undifferentiated and listen to knowing songs about, you know, parties in New York, but, you know, be like a a more real person than these like pompous twits that he's sending up in these little, little sharp short stories. And so wristband feels super clunky to me because it's this kind of first person confessional something or other uh, and it, and I couldn't think of other songs like that even the songs on his most recent album So Beautiful or So What which well, many of which were about aging and some of which are in first person I think because of the way Simon's work has evolved it doesn't feel uh, like what we discussed about Beyonce and Lemonade where it seems clear that Beyonce is the protagonist of the album Lemonade and yet wristband it's a very specific experience that would really only happen to you if you were a mega pop star slash folk star however we would classify him so that one felt very <laughs> very off to me but maybe it's like disappointing craft table blues or something like that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. I don't know. I mean, does that does that short story uh, analogy work for anyone else? Or I'm, I'm curious, Dana and Steve, what your relationships with Simon's work have been over the years? Oh, yeah, certainly. Short stories is a great analogy. When I think of the Simon and Garfunkel, you know, just the great hits of the 60s, almost all of those tell little stories, right? I mean, The Sound of Silence, which might sort of be the, uh, Carl, I think you call it out as this, as, as sort of the ultimate um, affected alienation, sort of overwritten Paul Simon lyric it does sort of sketch a whole tale, right? It moves you through this almost cartoon universe that you could draw bit by bit, you know, with the writing on the graffiti on the wall or whatever. It's full of like little visual details. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's an incredible songwriter simply in terms of song structure, melody, and certainly, you know, early on influenced as they were by the Everly Brothers, just tight, you know, uh, harmonies. I mean, you know, he, incredible back catalog body of work. He's he's kind of a titan. I don't like him at all. He has, he just has unconquerably high self-regard. And as a friend of mine once put it, he just never, it's like he has spent a lifetime as the editor of his high school literary magazine. You know, he has this cleverness that he thinks maybe exempts him from ordinary life and kindness, Uh, especially he's shown a lifetime, a nearly a lifetime of unkindness towards Art Garfunkel. 
I think, which was really unnecessary. I mean, everyone understands, I think, that Paul Simon is the is the songwriting architect and genius behind that duo, but he needed to publicly degrade Art Garfunkel as someone who brought close to nothing to the table. He needed to, to hammer that home as if people didn't know it already. Um, I think the second complaint about Paul Simon, which is also completely accurate, Carl, I'd like to hear you speak to it, is that he's just, as he's aged and become less sort of naturally original, he's become an ethnocultural thief, you know, a kind of magpie who thinks he can go and take anybody else's tradition and incorporate it into his music. I don't, I, I understand that Graceland is a kind of classic of that. Um, I've never been entirely comfortable with it. Um, and then finally, just to end on a somewhat positive note, I mean, I do think he is a genius. I just can't, I, I find him cold in ways that I've never been able to get over. The exception to me in the entire catalog is the song Only Living Boy in New York. And when I think about it in those terms, it makes sense. It, it was a rare, that song is a rare act of kindness towards Art Garfunkel because it was, as I understand it, written on the occasion of Garfunkel being asked to audition for Mike Nichols' Catch-22, the film version of Catch-22. And it's essentially Paul Simon saying, you're going to be fine. You're going to be okay. And um, it just, it stands out in the catalog to me. It seems separate from all of the other songs because it's just backed by warmth and generosity. That's so interesting, Steve, because I do, if you think, I mean, I know what you mean, that there's a coolness to his lyrics. And I think that's sort of the third person distance that I'm describing as like little short story vignettes. But there is also aspiration to like grand pronouncements about what it feels like to be alive. I mean, the Rhythm of the Saints mm-hmm. is not a is not a small or minute title. Um, so it's not that he's shying away from grand themes and topics. I guess I don't. I don't find the songs unwise, despite that distance and the glossy yeah, remove of it. Like I think, I think there are there's something about the way that his lyrics, and this is where the songwriting craft comes in. But the way that specific lyrics are written or delivered, I actually think his like phrasing as a singer is interesting and precise and specific. And then the way that phrasing plays off of all of the rhythms that he deploys in the songs that makes them land for me in a way that that I find powerful. Julia, I, I actually do think that he achieves moments of wisdom. I think that that's true. I think that part of it is that the, I think that, that his cleverness and irony and humor never quite land as strongly or rarely land as strongly as actually the moments of sensitivity and the moments of interiority. And it, to me, this delivery that he's developed part of it it's partly the great miracle of post great of post simon and garfunkel paul simon i think through the 70s he developed this interesting conversational tone as a songwriter and as a singer that is kind of unique to him and and really and is a particularly new york artifact as well and the problem is that when it's becomes too arch, which I really think it does, for example, in that uh, sushi knife moment, um, he would have to be a funnier person than he is for those moments to work. And that's, that, you know, I, that's the problem that I often have on Graceland is that this beautiful, beautiful music is going on and this slightly glib thrown off thing is happening in between them. But I, I also think that album is a masterpiece. And in many ways, I don't think the cultural appropriation charge ends up landing because in so many ways he does 
make those songs his own while providing enough space for the other contributors to be completely recognized by the listener. Rather, he's, he's paying those people at the proper amount back for royalties. You know, he didn't share credit on most of those songs. And when you look at the way that they were created and you watch documentary about it and all that kind of thing, it seems very clear that the, that the other musicians were equal songwriters on those songs in many ways. And, and it's, and it's always been a thing that's stuck in people's craw that he didn't quite give credit where credit was due on that level. But, you know, more than just as a sort of fetish object for 80s yuppies, that album really did end up making a lot of people feel like they understood and cared about South African culture at a time when that solidarity was really necessary. And in a lot of ways, if you watch the documentary about Graceland, you can't help but conclude that he was right and the absolutists about the cultural boycott were wrong. Um, and that his tour did a lot to, you know, maybe more than a lot of campus protests did to move sentiment to that side. It all feels like it was a bit, bit accidental and he had no idea that, that, that he was doing something quite so good. But, you know, he was smart enough to see it when it started happening. But that's kind of, you know, that's kind of a rare moment. And I, and I, I worry less about the appropriation side of it than about the side that it seems like his perspective and his wisdom is overrated by him. And he becomes a kind of poor editor and judger of, of the merits of one piece of work versus another. Can I ask you one question that's, uh, that's more narrow? Mm-hmm. You used a word in your review that I was completely unfamiliar with. You say, at his strongest, he flips acrobatically between modes from colorful snapshots and wordplay to art skepticism to romantic poignancy. At his weakest, he garberates them. What is garberate? <laughs> Wait, <laughs> well, hold on. Before you answer, Steve or Dana, were you familiar with that word? I was not, but I heard people on Twitter talking about Carl's wonderful piece on Paul Simon and s- suggesting that it's a Canadianism. Is that right, Carl? Hold on. Before you answer, Steve, garberate in your lexicon or nay? Not in lexicon. All right. Explain, Carl. Yeah, this turns out to be, if not a Canadianism, perhaps a regionalism, because I think it might be used on a co- in a couple of bordering states to central Canada. Um, a garburator is a term for uh, garbage disposal. So, <laughs> so it's like he's shoving them down, shoving all these modes of speech down the incinerator, and um, and mashing them together willy nilly. That I was see. the intention. He chews them up into an unappetizing slurry. Yeah, yeah. Got it. All right. Well, it's interesting to dig into Paul Simon and his many strengths and weaknesses with you guys. Before we conclude, let's all go around and either say our favorite Paul Simon song or uh, maybe in Steve's case, since you already grudgingly gave him the one song uh, that you like, your least favorite or most loathsome or contemptible. But let's start, Dana, with you. What's your favorite Paul Simon song ever? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, I already claimed the whole graduate soundtrack. So if I can I can have have that and set it aside for to pick an actual song that is not on that soundtrack, maybe I'll go with Cecilia. That's a great song, and it's a classic that anyone could sing forever. I mean, to me, that's just an example of how good a pop composer he is. It's just pure pop structure. Carl, what's your number one? It's tough to say. I think that I would choose – talking the piece about how Hearts and Bones is kind of sentimentally my favorite Paul Simon album, even though it includes some terrible, terrible things. But um, one song on that album that often gets forgotten is, is a song called The Late Great Johnny Ace, which is basically his eulogy to John Lennon. And it's just a little snapshot of a song, and it doesn't get pompous and – it's really an illustration of his craftsmanship and and his ability to be sensitive and generous. Um, and it's it's a heartbreaking song. Hmm. 
Steve I, most loathsome? You know what? You've softened me. I, I, the song um, Renee and Georgia Magritte after the war, which you would think would have, you know, would rub a Paul Simon hater all the wrong ways. I do actually think that's a lovely song because he takes the pretentious high school literary magazine conceit and adds to it some genuine magic. You know, the idea of the surrealist painter and his wife in the United States discovering doo-wop bands is just kind of lovely. And then um, I'll also uh, heavily promote the Lemonheads cover of um, Mrs. Robinson, which is just great and gets (laughs) so much out of that song and it it rocks pretty hard. It's pretty great. But, you know, but then you put on me and Julio down by the schoolyard and you just want to, like, open up your fucking aorta and bleed out. Um, not my response to that song, although I don't like it particularly either. It's a song that gets sung at me fairly frequently because of the Julio Julia thing. All right. Well, I think I'll set aside Graceland and Rhythm of the Saints as two in, in the way that Dana has set aside the um, graduate soundtrack and just flag the song Rewrite that I've mentioned a couple times from so, so Beautiful or So What. It is just an excellent song. It's really a wonderful, wonderful, moving, wise and beautiful song so try that if you if you're familiar with the other stuff all right carl thank you so much for joining us to discuss paul simon either the worst great songwriter or the best terrible songwriter i'm not sure we drew a conclusion here but uh at least we kicked the idea we garbarated the idea around a bit (laughs) thanks so much for having me guys all right, you can come to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest to share your favorite or least favorite Paul Simon songs and how much you believe he belongs in the Garburator. Moving on. All right, before we move on to our final topic, we have another word from a sponsor. This week, our show is brought to you by Harry's. The Harry's shaving set will make the perfect Father's Day gift. It looks cool, feels special, and it is something that your father will actually use. Harry's is offering a limited edition Father's Day shave set, which includes a matte black razor handle, a chrome razor stand, Harry's moisturizing foaming shave gel, three of Harry's handcrafted blade cartridges, and a travel cover, all for $40. Plus, it comes in a sleek box with the option to add custom engraving and a personalized card. Order online to avoid the hassle of going to the store to pick up a gift. And shipping to the U.S. is free for all Harry's shave sets. Steve, I believe you are a Harry's groomed man. Is that true? <laughs> it's true. I am. Enthusiastically. There is no other way I would like to depilitate my face. Is that the right use of that word? depilate. D- depilate? <laughs> depilate. All right. Well, we'll leave that for a potential future Slate Culture Gabfest. But for now, go to harrys.com right now and redeem a special offer for fans of the show. Harry's will give you $5 off your first purchase with promo code CULTURE. Don't wait. Economy shipping for Father's Day ends on Thursday, June 9th, so act now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. Enter code CULTURE at checkout to get $5 off. Get your father something he'll actually use this Father's Day. All right. Well, we've uh, mothballed Steve for our third segment and sent him off to Ice's shin or whatever it is. Uh, and we're joined instead by Forrest Wickman. Hello, Forrest. Hey. Uh, one of our original Culture Gab Fest interns, now a dominant Slate Superforce, and here to discuss... <laughs> Local boy makes good. <laughs> <laughs> and now here to discuss Popstar, uh, the movie featuring Andy Samberg and his collaborators in Lonely Island, who are the producers of the much-beloved digital shorts uh, that appear on SNL, among other things, and who've now taken their shtick feature length and released it onto an unsuspecting world who mostly did not care. Forrest, you reviewed this film for Slate. Uh, What did you make of it? Yeah, I loved this movie. I was really sad to see that it didn't do well at all 
both because it got really good reviews. It was eighth at the box office, despite being the best-reviewed new movie to come out this weekend. It's also like the rare, relatively big budget, I mean medium budget, um, original Hollywood movie. But it just bombed. I, going into this movie, I would guess I was most concerned that it would just be punching down too much. I mean, the average person, I think, doesn't think they need a spoof of Justin Bieber and pop stars in general. Their lives seem to spoof themselves. Yeah. And and there's definitely, like, that makes some of the jo- jokes fall a little more flat. But the Lonely Island... Uh, are, you know, musicians in themselves. And I think they really, like, took time to understand the appeal of these artists um, before they could really dismantle it. Dana, uh, you've been freed from the churn of watching current movies and thinking and talking about them for months now. And now we've returned you to the shackles with (laughs) pop star... What'd you make of it? For one thing, I did not experience it as shackles. It was a total joy to be in a movie theater. And I actually love when we see something that's already open so I can go like pay the money and see the previews and be a real movie watcher and hear how the audience reacts. Forrest, I would not say I love Popstar as much as you seem to in your review, but I was thinking of your show last week about the nice guys and Julia just having to admit straight up, like, I have no real defense for it, but I just laughed my ass off. I think that I felt that way about Popstar. However, I will say that I think these three guys, Akiva Schaefer, Jorma Tacone, Andy Samberg, are at the best when they're all together on screen, which doesn't happen enough in this movie, and when they're writing and performing songs. I think their true gift is as song parodists, right, and as video music parodists, the way they got their start on SNL. And those sections of the movie are great. I'm always looking forward to the next, you know, recording session scene or the next scene on stage because there's going to be some new, over-the-top, utterly ridiculous song, some of which we should talk about and maybe play clips from, but a lot of draggy sort of mortar in between the tiles. Oh, yeah. I mean, I completely agree that this movie is... kind of a mat like it just it's not coherent it doesn't really make sense as a story almost at all and yet the musical parodies are so good and and I think another concern people had going into this movie is like why does this movie have have to exist you're spoofing music uh, and music videos like why do you need to make a movie but I actually think think it makes a lot of sense like the primary target of this movie is the concert documentaries that have become pretty big in the last few years like Justin Bieber Never Say Never 3D which you guys talked about here and the Katy Perry one and since we saw the Justin Bieber documentary, which I think we all liked more than we expected to. I have never thought about it again Sure. until watching this movie when I was like, thank goodness I've gone through the preparation for this film, <laughs> having seen the original text, Justin Bieber Never Say Never. But Forrest, uh, can you talk about some of the stars that he's mocking besides Justin Bieber? Who else yeah. is in that, in that list? Oh, well, so, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and we should also play a clip. I think one of the best musical parodies in this is essentially a spoof of Macklemore and specifically his song Same Love, the kind of famous gay rights anthem from a straight artist. Discrimination. It ain't right. I'm not gay, but if I was, I would want equal rights. I'm not gay, but if I were, I would marry who I like. It's not fair. I'm not gay, but the government has to say. And who can love who not gay or to which God you can pray on a gay? It gets me so angry on behalf of them. I feel passionate, not gay. Yeah, I mean, that song is fun. The other best song in the movie, I think, is the I'm gonna fuck you like America fucked Bin Laden. (laughs) (laughs) Finest girl I ever met in my whole life. Bin 
which is just like a lyrical tour de force. It's an incredible parody of an aggressively sexualized and troubling and misconceived pop song. Uh, but that's also a video they already did for SNL. Like that song appeared on SNL and it felt to me like a pretty paltry return for my 16 bucks or whatever it costs. I might have paid 18 to get to one of those. That's kind of weak. I mean, I didn't follow their stuff enough on SNL, but that really, recycling a song, you know, maybe it was like the teaser or the promo for the movie, but it's like the only really great full song in the movie, I think. The, The other ones are fine. I thought this movie was weak sauce, Forrest. I almost never disagree with your judgment about anything, but I... I love these guys. They're so funny, but often what's funny is the specifics of the lyrics, like the nonsensicalness of the lyrics. And often it sort of plays on, you know, the trope of the unlikeliness of the nerdy white boys rapping, which is itself like a little tired and a little bit lame, but they're charming and connected and self-aware enough that they usually pull it off in a pretty sensitive and fine way. And then the production values and the visuals that they put together to do these SNL shorts are just fun. I mean, the lyrics of Lazy Sunday, which was their first hit, are fun and great. And when you listen to this, you could probably spend time like nestled within like America Fuck Bin Laden or whatever that song title technically is. And there's like a lot of little verbal gems in there. But the broad movie is just super flabby. It's really flabby. And there are some nice grace notes. I mean, to the degree that it is mocking these like pop documentary, concert documentaries that have come out over the past few years, it gets some of those details right. I really particularly loved the musical cue when they talk about his childhood pet, a turtle who has <laughs> suffers from soggy bone syndrome, which is a good joke. And then there's this kind of like sad, thoughtful music, like this is the suffering that Connor has had to overcome in his you know, like there's nice little they clearly watched and absorbed the fine points of how these documentaries are put together. But I just was expecting much more antic laughter on my part and there was a lot of like I mean I I laughed out loud not very much and I would say so we've done a string of comedies which comedies are hard to assess and evaluate but in the last month we've done The Nice Guys Neighbors 2 Keanu in this movie I would put this maybe I liked Keanu least this is definitely at the bottom or second from bottom for me yeah, I mean, I I would rank it similarly. I just liked all of those movies. I mean, I think we've had like a pretty good streak of kind of good, dumb comedies. As for like the general flabbiness of the movie, I, I agree. I wish there were more of the musical parodies. I, you Did you not like the Equal Rights one, the Macklemore one? It was fine. It was fine. Wow. I mean, I think where this movie could be sharper, and you mentioned this in your review, Forrest, is that in parodying the musical biopic, it doesn't go as far or is not as sharp as, for example, Walk Hard, which I think you would agree is kind of at the pinnacle of the parody of the music biopic. So these moments, for example, where Andy Samberg's character, Connor For Real, starts to go downhill and be, you know, like rolling around in, I don't know, a, a Snuggie drinking, <laughs> drinking straight liquor in front of the TV, they feel like very sloppy parodies compared to, for example, John C. Riley sawing his couch in half to prove <laughs> that he's having a nervous breakdown. Well, they're parodying a different kind of movie, right? It's the, it's the serious walk the line type biopic versus these like – Puffy, self-financed. Self-presented, self-financed, like part of the marketing apparatus pop confection. So it's a different set of things they're trying to parody. But that makes the tonal shifts a little confusing because sometimes they are parodying the marketing 
and and there's sort of moments where he's like knowingly talking to the camera that work better, I think. But then it's sort of it get, it gets a little uneven in its focus and and does try to do the downward spiral thing. Yeah, you're right. It, it tries to do too much. But there is one funny gag that specifically has to do with the self-produced Bieber type of of doc, which is the moment that they're at some kind of event or awards or something, and three different stars are having their puffy doc made at the same time. Yeah, remember, yeah. so like Snoop Dogg is getting in front of the wrong camera to say his stuff. And anyway, that, I, I like I like that idea that if you're followed around constantly by an entourage crew, there's going to be moments that you just forget and start gathering <laughs> into the wrong camera. Yeah, I, it's interesting. I agree that Walk Hard is definitely a better parody. Uh, it's a better movie parody. Like Walk Hard's primary target was other movies. And ostensibly, this movie's prim- primary target is these other self-produced music documentaries. But I really liked it most as just a spoof of like everything that's going on in pop music right now, like a spoof of the music, not the music movies. And I will also admit that it's a little hard for me to separate the this movie as a movie from this movie as just kind of like a multi like a cross platform multimedia project where they've been performing on the voice and releasing music videos and really like taking the set of artists and like putting them everywhere you would normally see a pop star. Right. I mean, there's a funny bit in the... I mean, the problem is they're both a product of... They themselves are pop stars in the current moment, so their mm-hmm. ability to parody the thing that they're doing is a little compromised. You know, there's a, one of the funniest gags in the movie is is a joke where they parody U2 collaborating with Apple to insert its music onto your iPhone, whether you want it or not. And instead, they partner with like a Whirlpool type company so that Connor for Real's music just plays every time you open a fridge or a washing machine. <laughs> Which is funny. That's a good gag. I keep describing funny gags. So apparently I thought the movie was full of funny gags, despite my disdain for it. But meanwhile, they're like part of this multi-platform media apparatus where they've released all this stuff in different places. And so not that much of it is fresh. And, you know, they're incredibly well connected. And part of what they do is have these celebrity cameos. I mean, the the amount of star talent in this movie is demented and people show up for nanoseconds like uh, Danny Strong shows up for like a minute in a pool and Emma Stone has like an incredibly funny turn as a kind of like Rihanna-esque sex pot Yeah, I wasn't sure exactly who, who they were aiming at. Um, maybe she was supposed to be a little Katy Perry or something, but the song had kind of a Rihanna vibe. You know, there's a there's a turn for Justin Timberlake, who's been a frequent collaborator of theirs. Everybody in the music industry shows up for like a talking head cameo to be like, oh, the, you know. The Style Boys. The, the Style Boys, which is the original sort of in sync to mm-hmm. uh, Connor for Real's eventual Justin Timberlake. Justin Timberlake figure. Mariah Carey sits down and Pharrell sits down and like you'd think I was spoiling the big names, but there's like 40 more people like that who do sit down interviews. And I, f- it felt a little frenetic. Like if you do, if you do one, two and a half or five minute or whatever it is video that's designed to live on YouTube and appear on SNL and have a couple stars pop up or collaborate, that's funny. But if you amass that entire arsenal of star wattage and they all get to do one tiny thing, it feels a little squandered. Like I would have liked to spend more time with Emma Stone's like erotically self-rubbing, like glitter freckled sex pot, top hat wearing weirdo pop demon. Like she, that seemed great. I wanted her to like show up. Why wasn't she the girlfriend or something like that? Or I mean, I'm sure because she's expensive to get. And I would have rather had like less of all of this cred boosting footage from these people saying, oh, Style Boys, they meant so much to me. Oh, Connor for real. His songs are the best. And more like, either story development or just more songs. Yeah, I mean, some of 
the cameos in this movie seem almost like seem almost like they're put in there just to get headlines on music blogs and stuff. Like the Arcade Fire are in this, and they're kind of an outlier because they are not pop stars in the way that most of uh, the stars in this movie are. And like, sure enough, you know, Pitchfork and all the indie music blogs were like, Arcade Fire's in pop star, and they got their headlines out of that. But the actual. 15 seconds that Arcade Fire... Wait, what does Arcade Fire actually do? Because they're not pop stars, I didn't like notice when they were in it. Oh, I, I mean, that's the thing. I don't remember at all. It just was not funny. It was just like they pop up to say, oh yeah, uh, the Style Boys were so great. But there's not an actual joke, yeah, as far as I recall. Like cameo. Um, Apparently Joanna Newsom is in it somewhere too, Andy Samberg's yeah, yeah, yeah. wife. But I never, I saw her in the credits. I never she, spotted her. Well, she plays the kind of mad scientist who... Oh, in the Bill Hader section? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bill Hader likes, he plays a roadie who likes flatlining and and so she plays the guy who like uses the EKG to yeah, revive she's, him. She He's a clear. recreational flatliner. Yeah, that, I, because Bill Hader can do no wrong. I liked that little detour, I will confess. Um, we should talk briefly here about the article that Jesse David Fox wrote for Vulture about Lonely Island and, and their place in the music parody world as sort of the original uh, YouTube play. What did you guys make of his argument about the centrality and significance of Lonely Island and being particularly clever deployers of uh, web video as a comedic form. I mean, one thing it makes me think is like maybe that's why this movie didn't do that well is that people so associate The Lonely Island with free YouTube videos that they're, they just don't want to go out and pay 15 bucks, like like you said, to go see them. Yeah, I think it's true that the statistic that they released Lazy Sunday, their breakout hit something like two days after YouTube launch is launched is pretty crazy. I had not I had not realized that. I felt like when you were watching that on YouTube in that moment, YouTube was something you were already inured to and you knew about. Yeah. The other main through line in that article is the Lonely Island's relationship with dick jokes. And I like a good dick joke now and then. I thought the dick jokes in this movie were one of the weakest parts of the movie. In general, I'm not quite so convinced that their dick jokes are as subversive as Jesse David Fox (laughs) thinks and as The Lonely Island seems to think. But I'm curious what you guys made of that. Yeah, I mean, part of Jesse David Fox's argument is that their humor is fundamentally juvenile and that Andy Samberg talks about just wanting to return to the jokes that made him laugh when he was a teen boy. And you know, juvenile humor is great, but the the charm of Dick in the Box, that their great song, is the is the box, is the like distance and kind of hilarious packaging of the dick joke, literally, as opposed to just like smooshing dicks in your face, which is more what happens in this movie. Well, something I learned from that Jesse David Fox sort of profile of them is that they've known each other for since they were what 11 or something like that I mean I knew that they were guys who had come up together and used to have an apartment and I sort of think of them as these you know behind the scenes SNL writers in their early 20s the fact is they've known each other since they were 11 years old so I think that may be what gives some of that humor it's ineradicable juvenility which can get a little bit old but which also makes to me any scene where the three of them are acting together which hardly ever happens in this movie really sparkling and I like the way and as you said in your review it's not a spoiler to say that they, you know, the band gets back together at the end, right? The old style boys. And I sort of love that the resolution for the supposedly years long falling out between the Andy Samberg character and the Akiva Schaefer character is all resolved by smoking some weed and just <laughs> laughing and making a song, right? I mean, that's essentially what brings the band back together. And I sort of like that mildly pro recreational drugs message at the end. 
I did also like your point, Forrest, that this movie believes in talent in a way that a lot of pop parodies don't. And that that's sort of a clear through line in the Lonely Island work as well, which is that it takes a lot of musical skill to create musical parodies that specific, precise and funny and like singable. Um, And this is to the degree that we should take the storyline seriously of them like breaking apart and then resolving their differences. It's that the Andy Samberg character, Connor, doesn't really understand where the source of his musical success is and that it has to do with actual musical talent that brought him to where he is, that he's abandoned the the talent of his collaborators and that he like learns to see it again. And that's sort of like pure hearted about pop not being an utterly empty endeavor in a way that is sincere and charming at its core. Yeah. And it's a great, like surprisingly enlightened message about pop music that the best pop music tends to come from collaboration, even when the collaborators are behind the scenes. And like when you find out that that pop star didn't write that famous verse you thought they wrote, that that model is what often produces the best pop music and people should embrace that a little more. It's a poptimist pop satire. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Forrest, thank you so much for watching the movie, for reviewing it and for coming in to chat with us about it. Thanks for having me. We'll see you again soon. All right. Before we move on and endorse, a final word from a sponsor, Dana. Who do we have today? The Culture Gap Fest is also sponsored this week by Open Account, a podcast that gets personal about making, losing, and living with money. How much money do you make? How big is your savings account? These are some of the most personal and maybe some of the most uncomfortable questions that people can ask you. But where does that discomfort come from? On the podcast Open Account, created by Umqua Bank, Host Sujin Pak and her guests get open and honest about making, losing, and living with money. Some of the things you might hear would include an NBA star talking about his first professional paycheck, a daily show producer recalling his parents' penny-pinching, and a husband and wife duo who discuss the role that marriage plays in managing their small business. And that's just the first three episodes. These conversations wind up being about way more than dollars. They're about culture, power, class, and the complex emotions that drive our financial decisions. You can find Open Account wherever you get your podcasts. So download, subscribe, and get a little more comfortable with your money. All right. Now is the moment in our show when we endorse Dana. No, 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 no. I get to say it today. What have you got for us, my dear, from your your, uh, respite from the show? Yes. Well, as you can imagine, I spent the seven weeks that I wasn't on the show just madly cramming wonderful things, books, movies, music into my brain. So I actually have a backlog of endorsements that should keep me going for the next month or so. But since Wesley Morris on the show last week mentioned that he does not like double endorsements, I'm not even doubling it. I'm just going to go with one from the the huge store. Um, And it is a, a document about Pakistani music. Cue Steve laughing at me. Call Steve. <laughs> good, good. That was good. That was good. A chortle, a wicked chortle. So this is a, a film that's directed by this, I believe, Pakistani director named Sharmin Obeid Chinoy. And it's a documentary about this music school in Lahore, Pakistan. It's called Song of Lahore. And uh, this music school is essentially a place where for generations, you know, great tabla players have been teaching younger people to play tabla. Great sitar players have been training their sons to play sitar. It's sort of this this stronghold of, of classical Pakistani music. But they're having trouble making money anymore. Essentially, the nichification of the music market and sort of the traditional nature of what they play has kept them from playing anywhere outside of sort of elite Pakistani houses. So they're sort of trying to open up their music, learn to play jazz and Western kinds of music. And they decide to come 
you'll find out over the course of the movie how this happens, but they end up getting invited to jazz at Lincoln Center to play. And so there's this great part in Pakistan where they're all trying to figure out things like Dave Brubeck's take five on the sitar. And uh, you, normally east-west combos, and we just talked about this a little bit with Graceland and Rhythm of the Saints. I mean, usually to me when eastern and western musics try to do some sort of grand coming together, they both end up weakening each other and sort of losing what's most interesting about both of them. And there are moments in this documentary where you see that and you see like, I really wish they would take the violins out of that arrangement. But when they actually make it to Lincoln Center, it's both this great kind of fish out of water dock of of, of a bunch of Pakistani musicians kind of enjoying Midtown New York. And it's just a beautiful example of two musical cultures coming together and actually listening to each other and learning and creating something new. And it's full of fantastic, fantastic music. So Song of Lahore, it's not in theaters anymore, sadly. It's, I think it was out a couple months ago, but it's on iTunes, so you can find it at home. That was like the platonic Dana endorsement. <laughs> it's so good to have you back, Dana. <laughs> um, Cue the sound of a sitar. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, Steve, with, a, with half a calf... What are you consuming and what is taking your mind off of your pain? Well, I love that Wesley Morris has become, quite rightly, the conscience of this show because I'm going to do only one endorsement. I had a couple, but no, you're quite right. Wesley's quite right. Uh, Let's keep it simple. So a listener to the show wrote in with a list of books to read inspired by maybe one of my endorsements. He said, if you like that, try these. And it was brilliant. I mean, all of them have been terrific. And many of them, if not almost all of them, were books about the scientific revolution written by historians or sociologists of science. And by far, my favorite one was The Scientific Revolution by Stephen Shapin, who I believe wrote it when he was a University of California professor, either at Davis or Berkeley. I can't remember where, Irvine. I don't remember which one he was at. But it's a brilliant, brilliant book. And its, uh, its first sentence is, there was no such thing as the scientific revolution, and this is a book about it. And it just proceeds along in this beautifully lucid windowpane prose aimed at a general reader describing essentially how what we know is the scientific revolution came about, who did it, how they did it, how they thought about it, and how it was embedded within the cultural moment out of which uh, it arose. Um, it's it's extraordinary. So it's called The Scientific Revolution by Stephen Shapin, S-H-A-P-I-N. Um, he's one of those idiosyncratic weirdos who spells Stephen with a V, unaccountable, but otherwise um, he's a huge intellectual crush of mine, and um, you should check it out. That sounds cool. All right. Well, as a preview of our special Slot Plus segment, we are joined by outgoing intern Lindsay Albrecht, who will endorse. Lindsay, tell our listeners what they must consume. Thanks, guys. So I'm really, really excited to endorse an internet radio website called Radio O-O-O-O. That's Radio (laughs) O-O-O-O. Dot com. That's five O's. And um, it's really cool. You go to the site and there's a big world map and you can click on any of the countries on the world map and also on a decade at the bottom. And it'll play music from that decade in that country. Oh, wow. Um, and you can also do this really cool feature called the taxi where you can mix and match different countries in different decades. Um, you can also look at there's a couple of different kinds of islands across the map that are not real places, but things like Discovery Island and Lazy Island. Um, <laughs> Discovery Island, you can look at all of the new music that people have uploaded over the past couple of weeks. And Lazy Island is just like mellow music. It's really, really fun to play around on. And um, also, if you're a music collector, if you if you like world music, um, you can go and upload your own stuff to to radio And it's not a paid service that you subscribe to. It's just a free open website. Yeah, just a free open website. Um, anyone can contribute. And um, it's really, really great. Wow, that sounds fascinating and 
like kind of illegal, but <laughs> but fascinating. All right. Well, I will conclude with my endorsement, which is an episode of Surprisingly Awesome, which is the Gimlet podcast from Adam Davidson and Adam McKay. Adam McKay being the director of The Big Short and longtime collaborator of Will Ferrell's and uh, Adam Davidson being, of course, one of the founders of Planet Money. Um, and a sometime Slate podcast host. Uh, but their podcast is called Surprisingly Awesome, and it it's basically an explainer podcast that makes audio explainers of things which are ostensibly boring, but in fact, surprisingly awesome, hence the name. And they featured on one of their episodes a few months ago, uh, Slate Culture Gap Fest friend and alumnus Nick Bertel, who went on to explain music theory. So Nick, who did a version of explaining on our show to talk about how composers work and how they take commissions from uh, musically opinionated but ignorant folks like us, went on their podcast with the more narrow task of explaining parts of music theory and how to hear them and how they work. And he gets into the details and unpacks a particular chord progression and how it works on listeners emotionally and how you can hear it in all kinds of music from theme songs to jingles to pop hits to everything else. So I recommend the Nicholas Bertel episode of the podcast Surprisingly Awesome. It is not surprisingly awesome. It's just awesome. All right. Uh, Lindsay, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Dana, welcome back. Thank you. Uh, Steve, happy healing. Thank you so much. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lizzie Fison. And for the last time, our outgoing intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Our managing producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on itunes.com slash panoply. Our Twitter feed is at slatecultfest. For Dana Stevens and Steve Metcalf, I'm Julia Turner. We'll talk to you next week. The mama pajama rolled out of bed and she ran to the police station. When the papa found out, he began to shout and he started the investigation. It's against the law. It was against the law.